Voyage. This podcast contains discussions of prisoner of war experiences and suicidal ideation. Listener discretion is advised. This is Charles. I am in good health. I am being treated well. Do not worry for me. The Japanese are treating me fairly and honorably. Best, Charles. Even more so than other POW camps, this particular camp was uniquely cruel to the men there. It was a biological warfare facility of the Japanese. They would come into the camp and take men. They would experiment on them. They do live vivisections on them. They would inject them with like horse urine. Uh, pretty much you, you name it, that's what they did. In Linda Getz Holmes' book, Guest of the Emperor, she detailed Unit 31, specifically the Unit 731 medical team, which arrived at the Mukden POW camp on February 13, 1943. Much of this information would later come out in war crimes trials, where Mukden Commandant Colonel Matsuda testified that the purpose of this visit was to improve the health of the American POWs. During the visit, the medical team put Sergeant Herman Castillo into an empty barracks and a steel wire cage within that barracks, 50 feet long, 3 feet high on one end, and 30 inches across. That's a lot of numbers, so to put this more simply, imagine laying on your back, and you have enough room to lift your head up, and that's about it. Basically something a little bigger than a coffin. Castillo was kept in that cage for two weeks, more than 300 hours, wasn't allowed out to bathe or relieve himself. Think that through. Two weeks. Castillo was, understandably, psychologically devastated by this experience of sitting in his own filth, trapped in a cage, for two weeks. He would later be interviewed by a Japanese TV crew about his experience. He mentioned something else. A bird feather. My understanding is one night they came into the camp and, um, the guys woke up and it was people from that facility and they had feathers and they were rubbing it under their nose. Now, who knows what was on those feathers? It could have been, it could have been a disease. It could have been a virus. You know, who knows what it was? And my dad was very afraid throughout his whole life that what he went through would affect, you know, me and my sister. You know, he, he didn't want it somehow to affect us, like somehow it had altered his, his genes and he passed it on to us. Does that sound paranoid? It shouldn't. Castillo, also interviewed by Linda Gets Holmes for Guests of the Emperor, said that during the two-week ordeal, a member of the Japanese medical team checked on him three times. When it was over, that same person came back, injected Castillo with an unknown substance, and told him, now you're a carrier for life. Sergeant Herman Castillo died in April of 2005 after a lifetime of illnesses of unknown origin. As for the feathers, Goetz also sourced the following testimony from Private William Wesley Davis. Quote, I was asleep on a straw mat on a platform in our barracks. At about 4 a.m. I was awakened by a tickling sensation. I awoke with a start to see the face of a Japanese unfamiliar to me holding a feather under my nose. When I awoke, he quickly said, excuse me, and moved away, before I could ask what he was doing. Later, the men compared notes, and we found similar experiences had occurred to others, 
waking in the middle of the night to find an unfamiliar Japanese moving among us, sometimes with the feathers, at other times tying a tag with a number on it on a man's toe. In each instance, when the Japanese saw that we had awakened, he would say, excuse me, and move on before we could ask for an explanation of what he was doing, end quote. They were put in groups of 10. So if one of those men in that group of 10, like, tried to escape, they were all punished. So if he tried to escape, they would find him um, and kill him and kill the other nine members. So, you know, they knew that... (laughs) Anything they did, and there, and there was nowhere to go. I mean, if, if they tried to tried to escape, there was just nowhere to go, and, and so that was kind of fruitless. An escape by any was a transgression by all. On June 21st, 1943, three POWs escaped Mukden. For a week afterwards, their fellow POWs still in the camp were confined to their barracks and forced to sit at attention with their legs crossed. If anyone relaxed their posture, they would be beaten. Already low rations were cut even further, too. And those escapees? They were captured, sent back, beaten, tortured, and compelled to relay a message to the other men that, quote, it was no good to escape as the going was too rough on the outside, end quote. Their trial was conducted in Japanese and lasted about a half hour. They were executed by firing squad. It's been called the Holocaust of the East. A lot of death, I would have to give you an exact number later, but my understanding is that um, his, his camp had the worst death rate among any of the prisoner of war camps. The diary of a major PT from the Mukden POW camp is likely relevant as Susan's father's camp was nearby. PT recorded that 201 prisoners in his camp died in 151 days. Do you think these guys got kids? Uh, too young. Most of them. Not the officers. Yeah, officers. Probably have kids. Yeah. So you figure what? They wake up, make breakfast for little Japanese Johnny, give him a hug, and then head over here? Probably, yeah. Your mama ever whoop you? Oh, sure. I mean, you try having nine kids. I'm just glad she remembered our names. Maybe they think about it like that. Officers don't have to think about it. They got the grunts to do that. Different if you got to do it with your own hands. If we won, suddenly you have a couple of hundred Japanese guys stuck in a camp somewhere in West Virginia. You're working there. They do something to piss you off. You hit them? No, of course not. Well, I I mean, not for no reason. Like, if they tried to escape, I mean, you can't have them trying to escape all the time. Sure. It'd have to be for a good reason. is what I'm saying, not just for breathing like they do us. Right. No? I beat the living shit out of all of them. All day and all night. You wouldn't. Try me. You're saying it now, but I know you. You wouldn't. I hope you're right. I really do. (sighs) Hey, uh, what are we doing for the bachelor party? Charles, not now. Well, if you're marrying Josephine right when you get back, we got a plan. Not today. I'm finding a woman just so you have a reason to come to West Virginia. You're going to be my best man, so get yourself a reliable vehicle when you get home, okay? You won't need a wedding for me to come. How'd you meet your lady? Football game. She was sitting two rows down at Florida Field in Gainesville. I need to start going to Mountaineers games. 
What'd you say to her? I said hello. Mm. You're a real innovator. Hey, it worked. Take her out a lot? I guess so. Yeah. Never had much extra money for things like that. Good woman won't care. Hey, maybe Uncle Sam will cough up a few bucks for our trouble, huh? <laughs> but eventually, relief came for Charles and everyone in his position. And some Americans had uh, parachuted in, and I have read where one of the guys saw an American with his feet up on the office of the guy who was the head of the camp. So they knew something was up. They just weren't sure. You know, Dad even said when they were working that day, there's just chatter that, that something was up. And apparently one of uh, the Manchurians who also worked there just kind of went kaboom, like a big a big explosion, but they, they didn't know what it was. They, you know, they didn't know what an atomic bomb was. There was very little news that, that got into camps. So they were kind of, you know, they, they knew that um, Manchuria was being bombed. You know, they knew that they tried to be bombed. They, they knew that things were going on. They knew it was close. But after the few Americans parachuted in, they had to wait until the Russians repaired a, a railroad so they could get in. Eventually, the Russians came in and they did liberate all the men. They had to stay in camp for a few days, but eventually they were allowed to explore and to go out into the city. What are you going to do with it? Whatever the hell I want. Is it heavy? Huh, not as much as you'd think. Man, that sucker is big. Guess I could chop onions with it. Stood a couple feet away from the kitchen table. What'd you give him for it? Some quinine. Shit. He must have really needed it. He smiled. When? When he gave me the sword. Huh. At least I got something. I'd spit on it and toss it into the deepest, darkest ocean. Well, that would be a sin. Well, place it came from had plenty of sinning. Wonder how old it is. Maybe he just made it last week for all you know. I don't think so. I think it's old. Really old. What, like 50 years? Like 500 years old. That possible? He said a word about it. Tamaha something. I mean, shit, it's steel. Steel doesn't exactly go bad, you know? Let me hold it. I think the guy who made it 500 years ago or whenever thought two American assholes would be holding this thing? I still say we chuck it on principle. No. I want to remember. You think there's any way you could forget? It was here. Like me. Like you. Before us. And it'll still exist. After us. Proof. Otherwise, shoot, ten years from now, I'd probably talk myself into thinking this was just a nightmare. Wouldn't that be better? No. Because then it'd be like none of it mattered. Hmm. If I can forget, if people can forget, it's like it was for nothing. They had a little bit of money, so they'd go in and, and like they were given shoes, they'd, they'd take the shoes into town and trade them for something else. You know, and I don't know, but that's how my dad ended up with the sword. Somehow he traded something and he got that sword that, that he brought home with him. Well, the Americans actually flew over 
and brought these big shipments of like food and medical supplies and they were just dropping them out of the out of the planes you know with little regard of whether they're hitting anyone and dad said he saw a can of peaches and he wanted those peaches so badly so he took a rock and and like hammered it to get it open he goes i sat down i ate the whole thing and he said it made me so sick so they were actually under the i guess under orders from the russian army because they were in charge of them for those for that time they are taken um by train, they went to Darien, China, I believe. And that's when they got on their rescue ships for the way home. They just kind of left. Uh, most of them left. A few a few hung out because um, I've seen pictures and I've read where, um, you know, there was like POWs guarding their Japanese captors. But my understanding is most of them just left. I mean, they knew they would kind of be in trouble for what they did, so they just kind of left, kind of walked away, I think. They took a train um, to Darien, China, and then they were boarded on ships home. Um, Dad said it was just unbelievable. He said they would have food, any kind of food you wanted, you know, 24-7, but you couldn't eat it because you got sick because she hadn't had food for so long, but he said they were very well cared for. According to Goetz Holmes' book, on the hospital ship The Relief, the ex-prisoners were provided with soap, towels, a clean soft bed, a steak dinner, and ice cream. Oh, I can't imagine. I mean, it, there were cots set up all over the ship for these men to sleep on. And I'm sure, you know, it was clean, it was warm, it was comfortable compared to what they had. You know, you walk around whenever you want to. You can go out on the deck. I mean, there's food available. I mean, it must have been paradise for these people. For Charles, having a meal would be different from a normal person for the remainder of his life. He was very particular. When it was dinner time, you came and you ate. You know, you didn't say, oh, I want to go watch finish watching my TV show. He'd say, no, those people don't care whether you eat or not. You have to come in and eat. So we had to sit down and eat, period. I mean, you just didn't get up. You know, of course, we didn't have phones like we do now, but you had to sit and you had to finish your meal. You didn't waste food. No, you ate it. Of course, there was no rice. I didn't have rice until I went to college because you just well, he's just, no, no rice. I mean, he just, he wouldn't even have it in the house. But he would save strange things. Like, he'd save, like, from a bar of soap when you get down to that last little bit that you can't really use for anything. He had a coffee tin where he saved all those. He's like, well, you know, you never know when you might need that. You know, I could use those camping. But he did kind of odd things like that. Um, I don't think there was any fanfare. I don't think there was fanfare at all. Um, he never talked about when they arrived, the ship arrived in San Francisco, that there was any kind of, you know, it, there was no parade, there was nothing. I guess he went to um, Lauderman General Hospital in San Francisco, and then I, I presume a train he took back east. He had mentioned it, you know, just that there was nothing. I remember... I was sitting with him and we were watching um, 
the Vietnam prisoners when they got off the plane when the first ones came back and they got off the plane and the news media was all there and all the photographers and the band and dad's like well we didn't get any of that you know nothing you know after he was in the hospital in West Virginia they you know they gave him a leave and you could take a bus and see your family or whatever but you know there was there was nothing even his hometown that said, you know, welcome back. There was nothing. They didn't follow up with these guys. I mean, these guys, some of them had serious mental problems. And they just let them go. Okay, you're done. You're discharged. Goodbye. Yeah, it's just, it's, it, it was strange. You know, now they've got all these, these organizations like the Wounded Warriors and the Veterans Administration follow these guys. Oh, not these guys from World War II. They just discharged them and said, go, you're free. That's it. He got like $1,200 or something. You know, I'm thinking, oh, oh gee, you know, <laughs> that'll go far. That letter you heard at the beginning? The Japanese did have the American POWs send postcards written by their Japanese captors to their families, insisting they were being treated well. This duality of putting a good face on the treatment of the prisoners outwardly would come up again and again, particularly in the war crimes trial to come. More on that in the next episode. It was like a postcard, pre-typed like, on what he said, you know, basically said, you know, I'm in good health, you know, I'm being treated nicely, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he signed his name and that was it. Yeah, they sent postcards. Yeah, it's bizarre. Even though my father was physically free from captivity when he returned home, in some ways, his problems were just beginning. Letters from My Father is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Garrick Dion, and Dan Benamore. Executive produced by Susan Hearn. Written and directed by Dan Benamore, based on the research of Susan Hearn. The novel cited in this podcast is Guests of the Emperor, The Secret History of Japan's Mukden POW Camp, written by Linda Goetz Holmes. Starring Jack Quaid as Charles and John Cahill as Earl. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by Nick Nassidi. Original music by Darlis Gonzalez. If you are a veteran in need of mental health support, you can always text or call 988 for the Nationwide Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes.